Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests. Returning uh, fan favorite, Sheil Manat, uh, a new network leader at Village Global, and uh, Seth Rosenberg, a longtime uh, uh, listener and first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. If I may say so myself, uh, of of Greylock. So, Seth, we're here to talk about some of the thoughts and, and presentation that you put together around where you see the big opportunities in fintech today. Why don't we just back up? You know, you have a background at Facebook, Goldman before that. Out of, out of all the areas where you can focus, why did you determine that the opportunity was in, was in fintech? Why, why spend all your time there? Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on. It was when I was first putting together the initial ideas of this, I actually called Eric and Sheil and we had a little brainstorming session. So it's fun to see that it's out in the wild and that we're talking about it here. I mean, a really high level thing to kick it off in terms of why I'm excited about this space is, you know, there's $7 trillion of market cap in financial services in the U S and almost all of the leading companies are still incumbent companies, traditional companies. If you look at most other sectors, you know, Netflix is depending on the day, you know, larger than Comcast universal, uh, Facebook, you know, $500 billion market cap is the largest media company. And it, you look at every single sector, that's the case. Financial services for a variety of reasons, regulation, trust, you know, just rails and infrastructure has just lagged. And so I think now we're in kind of a golden age of just rebuilding the entire financial services industry using software. And, and who are these incumbents? And it's, it's not like they're so good, right? Or- <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're great. Yeah. They're great depending on who you are, right? If you're, uh, the CEO of a company, you know, in some cases, if you're a venture investor, you know, depending on who you are, you're extremely well served, but there's huge holes. And that's, you know, the entry point for a lot of startups that we've seen. Uh, So talk a little bit about some of the big assertions that your, that your deck and presentation make and what are the opportunities to, to disrupt them? Yeah. Well, I, I started with just like a simple definition of, of what is finance. I was trying to, trying to just take a step back to think a little bit more in first principles, not like, you know, what's the best insure tech startup out of the four that I've seen this week? It was more, you know, why did the financial services industry even exist? And, and if you were to rebuild it from the ground up, um, what would it look like? So in the deck, I came up with this, this definition, which is just relatively simple, but it has some interesting, um, threads that you can pull on, which is, uh, infrastructure to exchange resources with unknown people and businesses. And each one of those words is basically, you know, an entire industry in the existing financial services. For example, unknown people. You have all of these tools and businesses like FICO and credit scores and actuarial tables to basically solve for the fact that you don't know who you're dealing with and you have this, these intermediaries who take large fees. But in So you're saying like any identity system is a fintech company. Is that fair? I actually like that. I, I think, I don't know if I was actually thinking that expansively about it, but I think, cause I was more thinking about it for this particular use case, but, but I think that's an interesting point. I think I, I like it cause I invest in fintech and I like fintech to be as broad as possible to allow me to invest as many things as possible. So I think that makes sense. I guess like the, the other question would be like, if it's infrastructure to exchange resources with no, unknown people, what about all these other things on the front end. So we talk about infrastructure, but like, 
What about the front end piece of it, which is like, who's actually interfacing with the customer? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I, similar to your definition of what, what is fintech. Yeah. You could expand the definition of what is infrastructure, right? Okay. You know, is, is in an installed base of iPhones, you know, is, is the existence of money. Is yeah. that infrastructure, front end infrastructure in this case? So I, under, I understand, I understand your point. I think the way I was thinking about it here was, you know, point of sale payment systems, iPhones, credit cards. I think it is all kind of, maybe there's a, a more general word for it, but, but the concept is, you know, what are the pipes and systems that are being built so that people can exchange value and exchange goods? Yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. I love it. And so. What is the hottest insure tech startup of the four that you've seen this week? <laughs> Sheila and I just did one. Can't talk about it, but it's dope. So. <laughs> okay, we'll have to talk offline. But... <laughs> um, okay, so that, that's where you started the presentation. What were some of the other sort of major points you were trying to, to make from it? Yeah, uh, just to build uh, just for one more second on, on the definition, like even, even the definition of resources, right, is expanding from, you know, and that's when you start to get into things like digital currencies. And then the question of infrastructure, you know, again, like data exchange and exchanges, payment rails, things like Plaid, uh, a lot of those have, have actually enabled this, this kind of new wave of fintechs. It, when you start talking about the why now, why are you interested in this space right now? Why haven't challenger disruption uh, happened in, in fintech where it has happened in other industries? I, I think there's a bunch of reasons. Like the one is if you looked at like who people trusted for the long time, like it was historically, you trusted these guys who had the biggest building in their small town and like they were the people that had money. It's also a network effects business, like more so than many of the other incumbents that you talk about. Um, fintech has historically been a network effects business. So like actually the more bank branches a company, a bank opened in a particular region, the larger the number of deposits per branch were. So like the more they saw that bank, the more they deposited and that, of course, takes a really long, and of course, there's scale benefits. This was, there was a historical flywheel that it really takes a long time to, to dismantle. And now what we're seeing is a bunch of companies that are actually not banks, but they're doing pieces, small pieces of what the banks were doing. And so that's how they've started to, to go after this huge behemoths. Yeah. I, I think like the trust and network effect is, is super interesting. Like I think a lot of digitally native people or just people in our generation, like, I personally trust an app where I feel like I have full control and there's transparent fees and uh, you can pull the levers yourself. I trust putting my money in a place like Wealthfront more than, you know, some person with a suit and tie giving me a call or, you know, with an expensive office that I feel like I'm subsidizing. Uh, and so I think just that generational shift and shift in trust is, is really important. Seth, one of the businesses you were involved with very early on um, is uh, Tia. And my understanding was that they were trying to initially create sort of a, a chat app so that they could own sort of the, um, you know, the relationship with the, the, the woman over her life cycle for, you know, all of her, all of her needs. In fintech, is, is it similar in that people are trying to own one specific use case and then own the entire customer relationship and everyone's effectively competing to be a bank <laughs> or what, what is it? Definitely. Like, like we said, when you ask, like, are the incumbents, you know, strong or, and it's like, yes, they're strong depending on who you are. And so we saw, you know, the emergence of all of these point solutions, primarily serving the underserved because there's, you know, very low marginal cost to distribute software. So things like, you know, payday loans 
or um, or things like Chime, you know, where, where it has certain services that uh, benefit like gig gig economy workers or um, or others that were previously not well served by banks. It's definitely, I think, the let's say the bull case of of any one of these um, companies is that that's their entry point, and then they're because they have data that they can iterate on because they're software companies that can just move m- more quickly than incumbents. They take that wedge of customer acquisition and then start to add on services. I think as investors, one of our uh, challenges is to identify which ones are best positioned to do that. And and I talk about that a little bit in the deck. Let's, let's get into it. What are some of the characteristics of of outliers or, or companies that, that will own the customer relationship in a, in a durable way and be able to expand from there? Yeah, I'll kick it off. And I'd love to get Shield's perspective too. But one framework I laid out was basically just this trade-off between depth of relationship with this with the customer and frequency. So robo-advisors is a good example of very deep relationship with a very low frequency. Yeah. And so, you know, I love uh, robo-advisors. I think it's a great way to invest, but I check it once or twice a year at tax season. Yeah. Uh, so their ability to add on services to me is limited to that one time I check it. On the other end of the extreme spectrum, you know, maybe you have a Venmo. I'm using it all the time to, you know, pay my friends after a coffee or after a, bear, a berries class or whatever. And um, <laughs> you don't need to laugh, man. Be proud. <laughs> I'm going to my first one tomorrow wow. morning. Amazing. Yeah. One of us. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, you know, just because I'm using Venmo all the time doesn't mean I'm going to get a mortgage from them right away. I don't necessarily have the trust. I don't have, you know, my money stored with them other than the, you know, 50 bucks of float. And so finding the sweet spot and some of these challenger banks that are, that are starting to, um, get breakout traction may be actually in a good position because especially ones that have your direct deposit set up, you have a pretty deep relationship with the customer and they're using it pretty frequently in terms of using the debit card to spend. Yeah. I, I think that's true. By the way, very few of their customers have debit or have direct deposits direct set up. Um, I was recently looking at numbers from another company. Uh, one of these large neobanks, uh, is spending 40 to 50 bucks to acquire a customer. And that ends up being actually two to $300, 250 to $300 per direct deposit customer. So to actually, like historically, the numbers for traditional banks have been like they would acquire, spend 500 bucks to acquire a customer. And then each service that they had, they would make like 250 bucks LTV off of it or 300 bucks, maybe LTV off it. So they'd be profitable on the second thing that the second uh, product that the, the customer used. It's interesting to find out that Chime, these neobanks are actually not that far different in terms of what it costs to acquire a customer. One of the things that's happening though is like every single consumer fintech app is converging on a similar set of features, whether it's like Wealthfront Betterment, uh, adding savings products. There's in the lending space, there's like Bridget and Digit. They're adding, or Bridget, Bridget and Dave, uh, Digit on the savings side, Albert and Power, Stash, Acorns. They're all converging on largely the same set of features that includes investing, lending, savings, and then for some of them, advice. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like as all, as many of them are moving into the debit card space recently, like there's only so many that you can have. As a consumer, I might have many of these apps right now, but if one of them wants to be my primary banking account, there's only going to be one that's going to get to my direct deposit. 
it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. And are they all commodities in some sense or what determines, you know, what's going to be the one that has, that's defensible? I think like it's really comes down to trust again. Like which one does the consumer love to use? And it's both frequency and depth, like, and yeah. depth, like, like Seth said. And I, I think, you know, I have my bets, yeah. like as in, I've invested in, in Albert and I, they're starting with advice and their customers send them text messages asking for advice. Yeah. They also have a savings product and investment product and they're adding a lending product in a couple months. So I like where they're at. I do think that there's a ton of competition in this space and we're already seeing CACs go through the roof in the past year. So it'll be really interesting to see who can build a durable brand where like they're not relying on that like right. Facebook spend to get new customers. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention our, our friend, Lindsay Holden's uh, long game. Long game. Yeah. He's trying to gamify saving. Absolutely. Super interesting approach. company. So are there any companies that have really figured out distribution hacks or how should FinTech companies be thinking about distribution? They should be thinking about it all damn day long because at like all of these consumer FinTech apps, I find that like their first hundred thousand, 200,000 customers they can get, and free, when I say customers, I mean like free users they can get easily. And a lot of them are like the same people. Like I download every app that comes out, but beyond that, it becomes a struggle and you are competing in terms of hacks that I've seen people use. It's like, there's always some arbitrage in some channel, right. like Snapchat seems to be a better channel right now to acquire millennials than Facebook is. Yeah. So I've seen that working for people, but I haven't seen any like amazing solution silver bullets yeah. that's going to get you your next hundred thousand users yeah one that i saw recently is step um a, oh yeah yeah that's a good one a challenger bank for for teens and um they just had like really creative design and just utilized kind of scarcity in a in a in a, and viral and kind of recommendations in a great way uh where they basically had these like really fun qr codes and really easy ways to share to like get access to the wait list yep. of step. Well, to be fair, they were also giving away free money. That <laughs> yeah, always helps. Exactly. Exactly. I was <laughs> to, to, to teens. Yeah. And and the cool thing about that is like exactly like, you know, for every person that you got to sign up, you would accumulate this balance. You know, people are accumulating hundreds of dollars of money in quotation marks because that money only actually converted if the person you know, fully signed up and deposited and used a card, which, you know, hasn't happened because they haven't launched yet. But I thought they did a really great job of getting that off the ground. I, th I thought they did a great job as well. And I, I, I like CJ. I wonder though, like they have this huge wait list of people who've signed on to get money. Do you think that's an effective use of time before they launch the product? I always wonder about this. I, I don't actually necessarily have an answer in my head. It's something that companies always ask. Right. I, I, I think... Part of the answer will be how many of them actually convert into into real retained users. And yeah, I've just never seen it work that well. But it definitely helps with fundraising. Yeah, but, which they, they did quite well. <laughs> but I, an, another answer to your question is just if taking a step back. I kind of, again, in the deck, I kind of outlined like five broad categories of opportunities. And I actually think this whole discussion that we're having now around consumer fintech apps is actually just one category. Yeah. And there's pros and cons. We could talk about it all day. Basically, um, I think the, you know, incumbent analogy is a retail bank, right? So all of these different fintech players entering from different angles with different distribution hacks are all going after the opportunity to be the next Wells Fargo. And a few of them are going to win. It's not going to be a winner take all. A few of them are going to win. But the other, the other categories that I think are also super interesting is basically, I'll just list them off super quickly and we can dive into any one. 
One is just the infrastructure layer. And this is more of the specific definition of infrastructure, which is, you know, things like Plaid, data exchanges, things like Stripe, you know, developer tools for payments. And, you know, the incumbent analogy there I use is Visa. Two is, you know, the full stack consumer, which we just talked about. Three is, you know, these proprietary data uh, companies. And you can think of an incumbent being FICO, right? You know, the credit bureaus. Uh, we this invest- is where like Tala or these companies are trying to compete there. Yeah, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you guys are in PageAway. Exactly. Similar, yeah. similar business. Yeah. PageAway is a great example. We just led the Series B. Four is, you know, marketplaces. Um, you know, have natural kind of lock-in and Coinbase. We, we did their their last growth round is a good example of that. Um, Roofstock, another good one. And then lastly is uh, what I call creation of new asset classes. And that's where a lot of cryptocurrency comes in. Right. I'd say these, like the ones that you've referenced here and talk about are all in broadly speaking in the banking space. But actually, like, I think you could use the same framework for any insurance company. Like, so there's an infrastructure layer, there's owning the relationship, there's proprietary data layer, there's a marketplace, creation of new asset class. Actually, maybe that too. So I, I think, I think yeah. this framework holds throughout different spaces within fintech. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And do you think there will be bigger companies within a certain segment? Are, are you like, do you have a focus within one of those segments or you say, Hey, there'll be companies across that stack? And I think there'll be companies across the stack and I, I'm interested in all of them. I think like, you know, as as it goes with investors at a particular moment in time, you're like diving into a particular sector that you're more interested in. So for me right now, it's the infrastructure piece um, that I'm particularly interested in. But, you know, I'm always looking at everything. And and where within infrastructures, you mentioned Plaid, you mentioned Stripe, like what are some things that don't yet exist, but should exist? Or what's your request for startups for fintech infrastructure? Yeah, um, I'm actually like searching myself for the right answer to this question but like an example could be a uh api for lending or a better api for trading a lot of people are built on top of apex um robinhood was until last year and i think that apex has not been a very good clearing product and i think there's an opportunity to build a new one but otherwise a lot of the stuff has been touched it just you know synapse is there on the api for all banking stuff or a lot of the banking stuff there could be an API built on top of a broker dealer. There's a bunch of different spaces to go to. Yeah. I also think insurance, you know, there's a ton of, like you said, infrastructure plays like, you know, what's the affirm for insurance, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I guess like Asurion existed before a firm mm-hmm. and like it is some, some element of that, yes. but, yeah, sure. but yeah, I think a modern one, for sure. Yeah. Or, you know, right now you have all of these basically at a very high level, the, insurance business has carriers and, you know, front-end brokers. And many of the front-end brokers are just entrepreneurs, have like, you know, a retail brick-and-mortar presence. How could you build a system that enables digital entrepreneurs, digital brokers, or, yeah. you know, so that you you have distributed distribution in a way where anyone can spin up, you know, and price a special um, specific product that has specific distribution. Yeah. So I think unlocking... Uh, entrepreneurship around distribution, pricing, and creation of new products and insurance is really interesting. How should we think about um, why is one of the biggest neo banks in Brazil? Like, and how should we think about uh, you know emerging fintech? Is it sort of the rocket internet model? You, you know, we invest in a company that's doing a firm for Latin America, it's crushing it. Just, you know, take what's worked here and just do it elsewhere. Or how should we think about international? I think take what take what worked here and do international is not the right move actually, because there's so many localized things that make a lot of sense in a particular market. For example, 
this company that we just invested in, they do uh, parametric insurance in Mexico. And one of the things that really excites me about it is when I go to Mexico City, I ask everybody, like, what's top of mind? And the number one thing that people say it's top of mind is earthquakes. They're really worried about the next earthquake. Like, they had a really bad one uh, almost two years ago. And it's literally top of mind for everyone I talk to. Yeah. Like, everybody's worried about it. And so this company... If you, if there's an earthquake, like you pay out, you, you pay a certain amount per month. And then if there's an earthquake, no matter what, like they don't have to come to your house, nothing. They'll just pay you out if there's an earthquake. So it's parametric, which means there's a set of parameters that if they, if they meet the parameters, you get paid. So that's something that like we have a very established market for, for insurance risk in the U.S. And it wouldn't necessarily make sense to do that business here, but it makes a lot of sense in Mexico. Totally. How do you think about emerging fintech? Yeah, so it's very topical because we just invested in, in Pedro in the Series B. And it's interesting because you really need to change your mindset. Like you said, it's not like necessarily take what works here and do it there. There's some just basic building blocks that are missing. And Pedro is a great example where, you know, 95% of people in emerging markets don't have, you know, any type of credit file. And so Pedro's initial use case is how do you actually use the smartphone as collateral so that anyone can get a small loan, even if you don't have a credit card, um, to by changing the incentive and trust system. And it's, so it's, it's, it's really clever the way that they do it through software. So you can just go into a store. You don't have a credit score. You don't necessarily have 150 American dollars on hand. So rather than being forced to buy a feature phone and being kind of left out of the modern economy, Pedro says, hey, if you install our app, then you can kind of pay over time. And, and if you don't pay in a given month, then the phone becomes unusable. And it, so it creates an incentive and trust system uh, in, in the absence of a credit score. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing sort of unrelated note is in the US, we have very um, strict guidelines on what you can use to underwrite a loan. And the nice thing is if you're a lender, you're like, man, if I had access to all this other data, if I could underwrite based on other stuff, what would I do? And that's the opportunity for like Branch and Tala internationally um, is they can underwrite on all sorts of stuff that we can't here. And, and like, if you could build a machine learning model on all the data you have on an individual, yeah. like what would happen? Right. Could you, could you underwrite better? You pr probably, yes, but you can't do that here. Yeah. And that goes back to the kind of, you know, exchanging resources with unknown people. Yeah. More, more and more, we're moving towards a system where we can actually exchange resources with known people at scale. Yeah. So it's kind of back to the, you know, original community where you knew everyone and therefore there were pretty low, you know, friction and trust costs because you just, and, and that was lost, but it is coming back through software. One, one thing you've, you've written about or thought about Seth is, uh, why won't the Asia model apply to what we do here? Sure. Like, let, let's start with just the WeChat model, yeah. you know, a fully integrated consumer app that does everything from lending to savings. Yeah. One cool, just quick personal story is in 2014, when I was a park manager for Facebook Messenger and we had just, uh, separated Messenger into its own app. Yeah. We did a trip to Asia. We went and saw, you know, South Korea, Singapore, uh, and we w went to visit the headquarters of WeChat. And I was talking to one of the product managers at WeChat, and they said, hey, we actually just launched this savings account where, you know, we already have payments in WeChat, and now you can park some of your money at like a 7% interest rate in our savings account, which is normal for China around that rate. And I said, oh, cool. Like, you know, what's your AUM? And, <laughs> and yeah, it launched two months ago. You know, I was thinking maybe like a couple billion. Uh, the AUM was a hundred billion dollars at the time. <laughs> it's so insane. 
the scale the scale of China is just insane. But but I think like to your point, WeChat like you can do everything in one app. And for whatever reason, like Americans have never preferred that model. Like if you look at if if you look at like the Google homepage, it was like super simple. There's one thing. If you look at the Baidu homepage, there's like a million different things you can do, and this has always been the case. And I think that like if you just this is something I just thought of right now, so I don't know if this is actually true, but like if you think of like countries where that is true, where like the main place people go on the internet is like has so many different lines of different things you can do. I bet that works where like Grab in Southeast Asia also is trying to be like the universal app. Grab is a ride ride hailing app. Like you might call it the Uber of Southeast Asia, but actually it's much more than that because you can pay in it. They're, they're, I think they're closer to WeChat or they're as close to WeChat as they are to Uber here. And it's like, they all want to be the universal app that you use for so many things, so many parts of your life. They want you to open it like 20 times a day. Yeah, I, I think uh, to build on that, the, like the the other dynamic is just the classic kind of like leap leapfrogging of technology where, um, you know, when Facebook scaled in, in the West, you know, for the most part, a lot of people were pretty well served by their bank. So if Facebook just launched some kind of janky savings or deposit, not only did we have tighter regulations, but... Um, you know, that's just not something that would just be adopted immediately. Whereas you've just in the last, you know, 10 years just had this amazing growth in economies like China. And when people are, are kind of entering the economy or the middle class for the first time and using WeChat, they might not actually have a bank already. And so it's pretty easy for them to just start consolidating services. Plus the, just the structure of the economy is a little bit more centralized. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like here, um, we talk about credit cards not being that difficult to use. And like, so if you never had a credit card and could pay with your phone, you probably would do that. But if you have a credit card, it's like, it's a lot easier. It's like, it's not that much better. Yeah. The listeners have been dying to know Seth. What is the definitive Seth Rosenberg hot take on Libra? (laughs) It's impact. Why is (laughs) it game changing or not? The hot take. First of all, it was a very surreal moment, you know, having worked with the messenger team and just kind of, you know, all three of us, you know, no, or some of our friends are working on that project. Yeah, sure. And it's just really cool to yeah. uh, see the kind of impact yeah. that a product launch like that can have. Shout, um, out. Shout out Morgan Beller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Morgan. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that really resonated with me is just, you know, David Marcus's opening letter of Libra, which just said, you know, if you walk the streets of San Francisco or New York, you know, the tech and finance hubs of America and in some cases the world, uh, and you ask a random person, how do I send $10 to Canada? You know, most people wouldn't know how to, wouldn't, wouldn't know the answer. Um, and I'm Canadian, so I actually do know the answer. I'm not going to tell you, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, it's just solving a very practical problem. You know, even if you just focus on, on, um, remittance payments or international payments, they, they have the install base and, you know, it's one of many kind of technical or product solutions, but, uh, it's one that I think will work. Um, and with the install base, I think I'm really optimistic about that one use case. I, yeah. What's the legacy? What will Libra have accomplished? I hope like for me personally, selfishly, I guess like my, my hope is that it gets to be a infrastructure layer in sort of like in your analysis, like is it an, it's an infrastructure for a financial system. And then Facebook also kind of may own the full stack customer relationship. They may not. Um, there may be other ways to access Libra, but 
definitely cross-border payments is a huge problem. And like, we don't think about it a lot as Americans because most Americans like don't even travel that much. They don't have friends elsewhere in many other markets like Europe, Africa, like there's a lot of cross-border pollination. And that's why like TransferWise started in London. I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity to, to impact a lot of people's lives and the remittance market in particular is huge. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fun to, you know, make crazy statements of what it's going to be in 10 years. I think, you know, in classic form, people are potentially overreacting a little bit into like everyone here knows how hard it is to build a product and get people to adopt it just because Facebook, trust me, you know, I, I worked on this for four years just because Facebook has billions of users doesn't mean everything you build people are going to use. That being said, um, I think we very much take for granted the fact that we have a stable financial system and a stable way to pay each other and save your money. Uh, if you go to a, you know, uh, countries that are less stable politically, you know, with hyperinflation, you can see governments basically currently owning a tool to wipe out the population's wealth, uh, through printing money. And to the extent that, you know, Libra plays a part in democratizing and distributing an, an alternative of, of people being able to, to participate in the financial services system, uh, without relying on a single thread. But I think that also is the challenge, right? Like it's a threat. It's a threat to the government. So regulation is going to be a real challenge. And I kind of, in this market and this day, I wish it wasn't so heavily Facebook branded, um, for that because in the West, you know, we have this negative or a lot of people have negative, negative, negative reaction to Facebook. Yeah. So we've just been talking about Facebook. Uh, you know, most of your deck, uh, Seth has, you know, mostly consumer fintech brands, but what about Amazon, Uber, some of these other, you know, Google, Apple, some of these other major incumbents? First of all, I would say like Amazon and Uber just have like amazing, ambitious roadmaps that are independent of building, you know, full stack financial services. Many of them can, you know, potentially take off something that's like really well suited to their use case. Like in this case, peer to peer international payments for Facebook or, uh, in Amazon's case, you know, maybe a universal login for, for payments and shipping. But I, I don't think that's a primary threat for, you know, some of the really exciting fintech startups to scale. I don't think of it as a threat, but I think it like, I think of it as an opportunity as well. Like, uh, I think I read that Lyft and Uber opened 30% of new bank accounts in America last year because wow. drivers, drivers need that. So, so there's a huge opportunity for them and also for fintech companies to serve them and, yeah. and use them as a distribution channel. Like, I definitely do worry about, like, if Amazon, like, I, I think to your point, Seth, like, if they were really focused on, on, fintech disruption, there's a lot they could do, but I think they have a lot of other challenges in their hands. Yeah. The deck seems to imply that the industry structure won't really change as a result of some of these um, you know, disruptions that we're talking about. Should we expect financial services to look the same after the shift, just run on better software, or will the value chain and delivery methods fundamentally change? Yeah. One way to think of it is, first of all, you have huge value creation from shifting to from incumbents, the $7 trillion to startups. And then I think you have huge fee compression but economy expansion, right? So fintech is just kind of like the grease for the economy. And right now it's, it has been stuck in a place where the financial services industry is just taking too high of a middleman fee because it's so consolidated and regulated. And because there's, you know, so much counterparty risk that they need to uh, compensate for In, in a world of software with, you know, complete information on every individual as well as, you know, zero marginal cost to serve. I think you're going to have ideally a 
far lower percentage of the overall economy, but the economy, it will have been an accelerator for the economy in general. Yeah, I agree. Which, and, and all that adds up to just life being better for consumers, which is, which is exciting. Seth won't talk about it himself, probably give himself praise, but I want to say like, uh, as a fintech investor uh, who's been doing this for many years, I really loved Seth's presentation. So Google first principles of investing in fintech. It's, it's super good. You should all read it. Like each slide has so much dense content. It's great. Totally. And Seth is also just a great person. So definitely pitch him your startup. <laughs> God, He's the best. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So, so much flattery. I'll well, take my thanks for having payment me, later. Yeah. And uh, it's returned. My guests have been Seth Rosenberg, Shil Manat. Uh, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Cheers. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 